As uh, referenced in the news sheet, the bulletin that we produced and emailed, uh, we're starting a new series. It kind of began last week, actually. Uh, we've been thinking and praying about what to do next uh, for our morning services. And a couple of things happened. Last week, uh, Phil um, preached a great message from Matthew 11 and verse 28, 29 and 30. I'm going to just read it as a context because from that, this series is derived. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That message is available either on YouTube to watch or to listen to in various ways. There's uh, in the notice sheet ways to connect to that. In the evening, I I preached a message from uh, uh, Matthew chapter 2 about the visit of the wise men, the Magi. And and then we were at Fresh Streams uh, this week. It was great to be back with other leaders from around the country. And uh, this verse from Matthew 11 was referenced more than once. I turned to Phil. I said, oh, Phil, you're on trend. Uh, Jokingly. But also, as we reflected on that, there's something of a timeliness of this. So we've set aside the following Sundays running up to Easter. We're working on a snappy title. It's not there yet. But something like the life and times of Jesus or the heart of Jesus. And what we want to do in this is, and you may think, oh, Jesus again. How could we not get away from Jesus? That actually he is gentle and humble. And actually, as we draw to him, he is the Savior and Lord. He is the one who rescues, the one who restores our life. He is fullness of life. What better way as we begin 2022 to be refreshed in that? So what will that look like? Well, we're going to kind of do two things. Explore a little bit about the heart of Jesus. But also, in the weeks running up to Easter, use these Sundays to remind ourselves of his journey. Last Sunday, I talked about the visit of the Magi. And today, I want to read a passage that I can't remember preaching on before. And I wonder, you can tell me at the door, uh, if you've heard a message on before and what they did with it. But it's in the Gospels. I'm not going to make this up. And we're going to read it today uh, from Luke chapter 2 and verse 41 to 52. And it's about Jesus, and it's a bit about his life and time as a 12-year-old. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began to looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. 
when his parents saw him, they were astonished. What would have been your parental reaction? His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? What's her tone, I wonder? Anyway, I'll read it kindly. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. It's obvious as you read that, that you might form a perspective about Jesus as an almost teenager. And you might reflect about an incident incident in your own, if you've uh, had to, to raise children or been raised, that you got lost. Hopefully not abandoned. That you suddenly found precious child absent. Throws up all sorts of emotions. It's a theme that, that got picked up at Christmas. Home Alone. Home Alone 2. Home Alone 3. I'm sure you can tell me at the door of instances where you have made a slight error of judgment. Or you may think about Jesus. What a precocious little so-and-so. I mean, what is stirred by this encounter, by this gospel story, in your kind of initial response to that text? This story in, in Luke is the only one about this episode in Jesus' life. And indeed, it's the only episode we're recorded for us of Jesus between his birth as the wee baby And his kind of arrival to be baptized. There's a big gap of some 30-ish years, perhaps just under. And this little story sits in the middle. Jesus is 12 years old and goes with his parents to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And it seems likely they do this every year. And it's unusual because, as I've said, it's the only reference we get to Jesus growing up. There's a long patch of silence. There's a long era of normal for Jesus. The Mary, who probably is the source, I'm sure, of many of the birth stories, particularly inspirational for Luke, doesn't have kind of a catalogue of events that she wants to let us know, much as we would like to know what teenage Jesus was like, wouldn't you? I mean, much later, there are concoctions, if you've ever done any reading. There's there's things called the Gnostic Gospels, a particular one called the Gospel of Thomas, uh, the derived from the second century and later. And in it, he writes about A lot about the growing up of Jesus as a child and as a teenager. But I don't think it's true for lots of reasons. 
because it's not there in the early church, really important. But the stuff that this text talks about Jesus doesn't strike me as Jesus. For instance, uh, he is presented as a precocious child who starts education early, one of those high achievers. Um, Talks about how he uses his powers as a child. And some people respond positively, and some people are really frightened. In one incident, Jesus was supposed to have made a clay bird and then breathe life into it, and, and it kind of goes off and lives its life. There's other episodes where uh, Jesus kills a child and curses a boy, and the child's body withers into a corpse. And then later, Jesus kills another child via a curse because the child apparently accidentally bumped into Jesus. I know. When you come across Jesus in the gospel, when people bump into them, he's not striking them down dead. He's healing and restoring, bringing the kingdom. Seems a little bit more like a Marvel story than the story of Jesus. That Jesus grew normally and through life and trained, we're told, as a carpenter. I, I can't speculate too much, much as I'd like to. Obviously, they came back from Egypt. They settled uh, in Nazareth because they were still frightened of, uh, of the rulers and this kind of uh, witch hunt, this, this belief that they had to kill this baby who would be king of kings. Nazareth being slightly obscure, unremarkable, learnt the trade, but remarkable things were happening. We see this glimpse as Jesus was 12 and ended up in the temple. Just worth bearing in mind that God is at work even when it seems like nothing is happening. We live in an age of experiences of looking for the next exciting thing. There's something really full of merit of the routine, of the normal, the passing of time, which isn't wasted, but God is at work in. It may seem like, oh, I had all these dreams and visions and, and thought it would be now, and, and yet it seems that month has become month and that dream seems to have lessened that word that the Lord brought to you, that sense of excitement about what I can accomplish in Jesus' name or, or see happen. And it seems that month has become month, year by year. Easy to look at that and think it's wasted, but not. There seems this remarkable um, pattern in Scripture of time taken, when the seed that is sown is growing imperceptibly, of wilderness, of weight, of 40 years, of exile in 70, of 30 years before Jesus preaches the gospel and says, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. The mundane, the ordinary, the Monday and Wednesday and Friday, the January is precious. It may not be spectacular, but God is in it, growing us. 
But there's something in this story of Luke, not only in this passage that we've read, but in, in the passage just before, when I was thinking about this, there's Jesus presented in the temple as a, as a wee nipper, as a young baby that, that his parents, Mary and Joseph, take him to the Lord and present him, and they encounter Simeon and Anna, and uh, there's, there's prophecies and, and kind of all sorts of things happening. And then uh, they move to Nazareth, it says in verse 40, the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. And every year then, we read, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem when he was 12 years old. There's something in Luke that I want to draw out here, that at his conception and then very early days as they went to the temple, but also regularly, the temple really features. Indeed, this is one of those themes for Luke. Right at the start of Luke's gospel, the temple is evident. Chapter 1, verse 9, that uh, Zechariah, the, the, the elderly father of, uh, of the baby to be born from him, John, was said in verse 9, he was chosen by Lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Verse 21, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered why he'd stayed so long in the temple. Do you know how the Gospel of Luke finishes? You could flick there really quickly. Big up for those who've got versions you can uh, find. They don't just appear on the screen. But in Luke 23... Sorry, Luke 24, verse 53, and they stayed, that's the apostles and the disciples post-resurrection, they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. For Luke, much of what he would say about the gospel is bound up in this place. Remember that the temple was at the heart of the religious life of Israel. It was right Back, smack bang in the middle of the city. It was visible. It's on a hill, isn't it? And people would go up to it. It would be the place of regular worship, of people gathering, of offering sacrifice, of people on pilgrimage. The very rhythm and contour of yearly life and the nation's life would be centered around that place. And the gospel begins and ends there. Even the church in Acts, as Luke continues his part two, the church begins, the people of God at Pentecost begin in the temple courts as the Spirit is poured out. Now, I'm not asking us to rebuild a temple or reinstitute that. No, not at all. But there's something about what Jesus does in the temple, the reminder to us of the importance of worship, the regular worshiping. That as Jesus uh, goes into uh, Jerusalem with his family at the tender age of 12, we glimpse in that procession, in that experience that he's had, a growing awareness of who he is. Not just as a, a person of belonging to the nation of Israel, but this wonderful, precious revelation that he's God's son, that the God is his father, that he was in his father's house. I mean, his earthly dad, Joseph, is right there with him. But Jesus has grasped something, even at that age, really profound, that his relationship, his identity was found because of the father, and he is the son. This glimpse we are given 
into his understanding of his sonship. We heard the echo of that already in chapter 1. He will be great and be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign on, uh, Jacob's, uh, over Jacob's descendants forever. The kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary? asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One born to you will be called the Son of God. Many heresies in the church, and still around in cults of various guises, lose this. They perceive that Jesus was adopted as the son at some point in his life. Maybe at his baptism. Maybe at his crucifixion. But this is not the truth. Jesus, the baby, Jesus, the teenager, Jesus, the man, is always the Son of the Father, always the only Son of God. Absolutely. We cannot separate that out. To do so ends us up in all sorts of untruth and deception. Indeed, Jesus in his very first words, these are the very first words Scripture records of what Jesus says as a 12-year-old. And they are about himself and his special relationship with the Father, deeper than anyone has ever known before. And indeed, the glimpse and the recognition that this relationship, even as a 12-year-old, that we know that through this relationship, he's going to bring all others who are prepared to put their faith and trust in God. Isn't that amazing? The plan and purpose of God Almighty being worked out. It's really interesting as a little side note as I was dwelling on this, to think, how do you refer to God? Jesus clearly says, I'm in my Father's house. He loves to speak of God as his Father. It's his primary language. Have you noticed? When he was challenged, how do you pray? What was his answer? When you pray, say, our Father. The invitation through the Son to join in that wonderful privilege of knowing God as Father. Of course, God has, has been revealed with, with many names. I'm sure if I, I asked you to shout some out, you'd be really quick. King of kings and Lord of lords. You may say Elohim, Adonai, uh, Jehovah, Yahweh, and so on. But as Christians, we're invited into this most profound language. Father. Father, Abba, Dad, Papa, however you want to envision it, it's intimate, it's relational. It's one of the things I was challenged on a, a, in, in kind of, I think, by the Spirit oh, a long time ago. That uh, as I was praying, I kind of caught myself hearing what words I used to address God. Sometimes we use it as, as a kind of verbal moment. Oh, Lord God, when we are praying, kind of, and we say this, and Lord, and, and Christ, and, and Jesus. And, and I'm not belittling any of those words. They're absolutely right that we come to God freely and, and address him. But the challenge for me was, is how often do I approach God and call, say, Father? Father. 
not just God, Father. And I made a conscious effort and still do that when I'm praying, not just as, as, a, as a magic formula, but actually as an attitude, attitude, a posture of my heart to address in prayer God as Father. And I talk to Jesus and then the Holy Spirit is yes, but in those relational, intimate family expressions. Because I think it drives at something in me and my spirit. And for us as a church, to know who we are because of him. He is our Father. Through Jesus Christ, the Son. That Jesus is the Son of God in his Father's house, about his Father's business. And reminds us in this temple moment that it's about worship, about coming to God, the Father. Coming to know him. Because in the heart of the temple, what was there, the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwells. And of course, it was masked and obscured. And, and later on, uh, as, as we were just uh, reflecting at the end of, of, um, of Luke's gospel, Luke records for us in chapter 23, for the sun, when Jesus died, the sun shot, stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, top to bottom. In other words, the presence of God released and of, of a kind of like a moving on from that physical building to now encountering God fully. For those of you who love uh, the scriptures and seeing the fulfillment of Jesus of so much of the old, reread the story of Samuel, 1 Samuel. The boy Samuel was dedicated by Hannah his mother, and was given and consecrated, wasn't he? And went to live in the temple and the temple courts and was with the high priest Eli. And Samuel in the temple was dedicated and given over to the Lord, learned in the temple what his call and his mission was. Chapter 2, 26 of Samuel. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. It's very similar to what Luke has. God is at work. Jesus is dedicated in the temple and consecrated to God. Up until this point, all that we've known about Jesus, and there's limited bits, but wonderful bits that we've heard again at Christmas, all the signs about Jesus and his special mission have been through others. The angel made the annunciation. Mary heard about the child she would bear. Joseph had a dream too. Elizabeth and the baby she was carrying leapt for joy. And Zachariah and the shepherds and Simeon and Anna. And in verse 49, we hear from Jesus himself. Why are you searching for me, he asked. Don't you know I had to be in my father's house? It's wonderful to recognize and celebrate the growing of Jesus. As a kind of pastoral staging point, it's really important and we want to bless and encourage all those who are raising people of faith. 
whether it's kind of natural children or those you have influence on, or, or even as we gather together and pray for and, and pray for Tim and Verity and the team who are working with our children. There are many ways we come to know God. In Alpha and, uh, and regularly in, in our service, we ask people to repent and believe, to have that moment of confession and turning to Jesus of like a Damascus road. And those are precious times. And maybe you've been part of that, I'm sure. Or when you know, surely, you committed your life to Jesus and you became a child of God. Absolutely right. But there's also another profound way in which faith happens and that's the growing of believers when if you were brought up in a christian home with believing a uh, believing parent or parents that journey that of being prayed with of being loved of being taught the scriptures uh, little hannah here was shouting out you know she for ages she has had the favorite story in the bible from luke 15 the parable of the lost things particularly the lost sheep because mum and dad are reading that story from the Bible she was given at dedication. And her faith is growing. Isn't that precious? That there's something really profound and it's right there in the Old Testament. And seen as a real challenge of how faith is passed to the next generation. At Passover, what happened? And Jesus was there at the temple. The littlest of the children at the table says, why are we doing these things? And the senior at the table said, what, well, we're doing this because we were enslaved in Egypt, and they tell the story to pass on the faith, to grow a child in the ways of the Lord. It's so, so important that that still happens. It's so, we're so thankful as a church that we can keep investing in our youth and children, that youth and children are such a precious age as they transition into secondary school and transition into university. We contend and pray for them because it may not seem that they've had a dramatic encounter and they've not strayed off the rails and, and got into all sorts of, uh, of muddy situations. But actually, there's a precious Thing of growing a child in faith. Jesus is a model of that. I'm so thankful for Joseph and Mary. Even they didn't know the precious gift that was amongst them, they were still so influential. And Mary especially, as Joseph at some point dies, to raise that child Jesus in the ways of the Lord. We pray for you in your role of raising young people. So, so vital. Bless you in that. When that faith becomes real. And yet even in this passage, just as I come to close, there's, there's an implicit tension. I asked you, how do you think Mary spoke to Jesus three days later, frantically, with great relief, you know, his open arms, there you are. Or what have you been doing? Don't you know we've been worried sick? Maybe a bit of both. But you know, there's a hint in here, a foreshadowing, the first sign it's already actually been announced to Mary. She says, son, why have you treated us so? They didn't understand what he was doing, and yet Jesus returned home obediently afterwards, but notice here the uniqueness and the overarching call of God upon each and every person. 
What am I driving at? Family, loyalties, and love absolutely have their place. But the Lord comes first. The Father's business comes first. Every relationship that we have after that flourishes best and under the higher love and loyalty to God first. Later on, Jesus says one of those hard things, doesn't he? He says, you've got to hate your mom and your dad. Well, he's not saying hate them, but it's a figure of speech saying love God more. In fact, with all of your heart, mind and soul and strength, comes first above all others. The challenge of discipleship. And Mary, dear Mary, verse 51. Dear Mary. His mother treasured, pondered all these things in her heart. There's a powerful scene, I don't know if you've seen it, in a slightly um, challenging film, The Godfather Part 3. Don Corleone is forced to visit the distinguished Cardinal Lamberto to tell him the bad news that a legitimate business deal involving the Vatican Bank has gone bad. The bank is run by the Archbishop and a coalition of Catholic businessmen. And the Cardinal listens to the Godfather, and then the Cardinal says something quite profound. He picks up a stone and says, look at this stone. It's been lying in the water for such a long time, and the water hasn't penetrated it. Then he smashes the stone and says, look, peering at the fragments inside the stone, perfectly dry. The same thing, the cardinal continues, has happened to people in Europe. They've been surrounded by Christianity for centuries, but Christ does not live in their hearts. The challenge in Luke, in the gospel, is though the gospel profoundly centers on the temple, the reminder that it's not bricks and stones. They've been surrounded by the temple for years, God within the temple. But the challenge is, do we hold him out or let him in? Paul would phrase it, they have the form of godliness, but not the real thing. Let's pray. us to pray, and if you're able to this and would like to, would you in some way maybe put your hand on your lap with an open-handedness, or on your heart, or something like that, and I want to pray at the outset, we would know through Jesus the favor and love of God for us. He is our Father. He's gracious and compassionate and loving with all authority, absolutely, our Father in heaven. Who is good. She said the Father loves to give good gifts. 
He gives us the Spirit. I pray we would understand and live in that reality just as Jesus enables us to do so. Our Father, Abba, intimate and full of relation, of belonging, of adopted, no longer lost or abandoned or cast aside or overlooked, but known. You are cherished. You are precious to him. He knows your name and speaks it with delight. Thank you, Father, for the life of Jesus that opens up fullness of life for us. Thank you for his sonship, his faithfulness, his utter dedication to you, Father. Where we fail so much, and yet he opens the doorway where we could not find a way. He lets us enter into all the fullness we were created and purposed to be. Thank you, Lord. We're now heirs, co-heirs with Christ. With the right to be called children of God. I'd like us to pray for for all those who have got that leading influence with someone younger who's growing in faith. So if you're a parent or, you know, you're a teacher or any, you know, you have, maybe it's just all of us here, but, but if there's, you know that you have been called and for this time, a particular kind of part of your mission and ministry is to pass on faith and inspire someone who's growing up to become a follower of Jesus, I just invite you to stand. We want to pray for you at this time, as this, uh, this the cusp of this new year. So just, just stand where you are. We're not going to come out. And I'm sure there's going to be lots. Maybe you've got grandchildren or a godparent, or you're the only person in faith as a grandparent. We want to pray for you. Invite you if you'd like to stand. And those, those around, would you? Uh, you can look or not, but just raise a hand. We want to bring blessing, and we want to pray uh, that the Father would give great wisdom, great insight, great forbearance, and that you would keep on modeling that faith. Would keep uh, in keep close to Jesus.
and in love for him and let that kind of percolate and spill out the aroma of Jesus to be around you. Not that you'll get it all perfectly right, but but to be modeling the things of being a disciple, to be living that call as a child of God and being a prayerful warrior of being an influence for the kingdom. And I pray for all those that are in your mind, all those that are in your heart that you love and are contending for and yearning for, that they should come to know Jesus. Maybe they've, they've strayed off or maybe there's no inclination around them right now. But we pray this coming year we would see that that would be a change in attitude in those young people, a, a, a seeking, an earnest seeking after you, a desire and hunger for the things of God that they remember perhaps from their childhood, that you would resurface songs and Bible stories and, and memories of the grace of God that they witnessed and saw and experienced even at a younger age, and they would return to you. For the prodigals come home. And for those who are loving Jesus like the little Hannahs and and all those others amongst us that are out at junior church now, that their faith would grow strong. We would have the privilege of seeing them say yes to you and making those life choices for you, of being baptized and of walking in life faithfully with you. We contend for them, Lord, our Father, that they may walk with you in fullness of life right from these early ages. Protect them, their minds and their hearts. And equip us to play our part. As parents and spiritual parents, as mentors, as friends of yours. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to gather and sing a closing song together.